William Collins presents Bloody Brilliant Women with me, Cathy Newman. This is a history of our times. This is a history of the pioneering women who defied the odds to transform modern Britain. This is a history of women who achieved remarkable things but have faded into oblivion. Throughout this series, you'll be hearing some selected extracts from my audiobook, Bloody Brilliant Women, The Pioneers, Revolutionaries and Geniuses Your History Teacher Forgot to Mention, which tells the stories of incredible women from the 1880s to the modern day. In this episode, we'll meet Claudia Jones. Through her story, we'll explore immigration in the late 1940s and the Windrush generation, the Notting Hill riots, and how a handful of mostly female activists like Pearl Prescott and Amy Ashwood Garvey rallied round her, determined to promote both black resistance and, ultimately, some semblance of cross-cultural harmony. We'll also talk about women like Rosalind Franklin and Dina St Johnston, who accomplished incredible things in science and technology, only to be written out of history by their male counterparts. Part 1 The plot of Josephine Tay's 1948 novel The Franchise Affair turns on the abduction, or not, that is the mystery, of a 16-year-old girl, Betty Kane, by two older women desperately seeking a servant to work in their vast, isolated house. Betty accuses them of beating her up and making her perform menial tasks. Her story is so compelling and well told that even though the women deny the allegations, they are unable to refute them satisfactorily when questioned by the police. Tay based the plot on the real-life tale of an 18th-century maidservant called Elizabeth Canning, but its relevance to the so-called servant problem would not have escaped any of Tay's middle-class readers. Once accustomed to having a cook, a nanny and a maid or at the very least one of the above, they were now finding it harder and harder to fill these positions. I know that domestic help is scarce, says Robert Blair, the solicitor hired by the ladies to defend them, but would anyone hope to enlist a servant by forcibly detaining her to say nothing of beating and starving her? Probably not. What was becoming clear, however, was that there were certain jobs that native British women were no longer prepared to do. So who would end up doing them? The welfare state had created a mass of jobs for women as teachers, nurses, social workers, clerical assistants, cleaners and caretakers. Between 1945 and 1951, around one million people migrated to Britain to find work and a better life. Of these, around 400,000 were British subjects from her colonies and dominions, 100,000 were Irish and 31,000 were German. From the late 1940s onwards, a steady stream of women willing to do many of these jobs, especially nursing, arrived in Britain. But by the early 1950s, rather than celebrated as the solution to Britain's acute labour shortage problem, these immigrants found themselves characterised as feckless parasites, especially if they were black. In July 1952, Osbert Peake, Minister of National Insurance, wrote that the public are concerned about the possible abuse of our social services by coloured immigrants from the colonies. We cannot keep them out or send them home again, and no doubt our standards of life, even on assistance, are attractive to them. Immigration had been encouraged from the moment the war ended to swell Britain's workforce. 
Through the European Volunteer Workers Scheme, 21,434 Italian women came to Britain to work in the textile districts of Manchester, Lancashire and Yorkshire. Another scheme called Bolt Signet was designed to attract workers from the Baltic countries, Westward Ho workers from Eastern Europe. Neve, an Irish nurse interviewed by the historian Louise Ryan, remembers being aware of the way people looked at Irish people here. Another trainee Irish nurse, Ema, was stung by the widespread British assumption that all Irish women were dirty. I can remember they used to teach us all this stuff about hygiene, cleaning baths and all this, the sister tutor holding up a box of vim, and then she would say, of course you Irish girls wouldn't know about this. Many Irish women worked in hotels in London's West End. One, the Cumberland, had 2,700 staff, of whom over 90% were Irish. 60 Polish women were already aboard the Empire Windrush when it docked in Kingston Harbour in Jamaica in May 1948. Contrary to popular belief, this captured former Nazi troop ship, renamed and refitted, arrived in the Caribbean on something of a whim, not as part of a grand plan to bring immigrants to London. As Robert Winder puts it in his History of Immigration to the UK, Bloody Foreigners, an enterprising skipper simply took the initiative and advertised for trade to fill his half-empty ship. There were, however, probably more takers than there would otherwise have been because the British Nationality Act had just been passed, giving British citizenship to inhabitants of Commonwealth countries. Many of them were former servicemen whose justified sense of entitlement had been sharpened by the sacrifices they had recently made for the mother country. Over 15,000 West Indians fought against Hitler in the British Armed Forces. Apart from the Poles, there were only two women on board. The singer and actress Mona Baptiste, who described herself to immigration on arrival as a clerk, and a stowaway, 25-year-old Trinidadian dressmaker Avril Wauchope, whose passage was paid for by a shipwide whip-round after she was discovered seven days into the trip. Windrush has become a potent symbol of multiculturalism in Britain, lending its name to the Windrush generation of West Indian immigrants. But not until the mid-1950s did women arrive in Britain in the same numbers as men, some to join husbands who had already made the journey, others to carve out independent lives. Despite the labour shortage, they still found it hard to get decent jobs, often had to accept positions for which they were overqualified, and even then were paid less than white women doing the same work. One West Indian woman interviewed by the authors of The Heart of the Race, Black Women's Lives in Britain, 1985, remembered rising early to get to the labour exchange every morning. I was actually looking for nursing work, but they wouldn't have me. Someone had told me that they would take me on as an auxiliary nurse and that later on I could train. But when I got to the hospital, the woman there offered me a cleaning job. At least this woman had found somewhere to live. Others struggled as respectable landlords turned them away, leaving the field clear for rogues like the notorious slum landlord Peter Rackman. Many black immigrants settled in Brixton in South London, close to the deep-level bomb shelters in Clapham where they had been housed on arrival. Rackman's seedy empire of nightclubs, brothels, mansion blocks and large houses carved up into tiny bedsits was based in Notting Hill in West London. His cheap rents were a magnet for the desperate poor, though what tenants got for their money was appalling. Notting Hill might be affluent now, but in the early 1950s its core community, especially in the northern area known as Notting Dale, was white, working class and fiercely tribal. 
Tension between this old community and what it saw as interlopers had been brewing for a while before it came to a head on the 29th of August 1958. A domestic argument between a Jamaican painter, Raymond Morrison, and his Swedish wife, My Brit, outside Latimer Road tube station, triggered an explosion of violence. Hundreds of white would-be supporters of My Brit marched through Notting Hill armed with knives and other weapons. The Notting Hill race riots blighted the area for decades. In their wake, though, a handful of mostly female activists like Pearl Prescott and Amy Ashwood Garvey rallied round a charismatic American journalist and activist called Claudia Jones, determined to promote both black resistance and, ultimately, some semblance of cross-cultural harmony. Jones was born Claudia Cumberbatch in Trinidad in 1915. As a child, she had migrated with her family to the US, where, in her early 20s, she joined the Young Communist League, inspired by her experience of racial segregation, what she called her Jim Crow experiences as a young Negro woman, experiences likewise born of working-class poverty. Imprisoned numerous times for her activism, she was on the verge of being deported to Trinidad and Tobago, when its governor refused her entry, fearing she would foment unrest. In 1955, suffering from heart problems aggravated by nine and a half months in prison, Jones was offered sanctuary in Britain on humanitarian grounds. Three years later, a few months before the Notting Hill riots, she founded a newspaper for the black community, the West Indian Gazette, which she edited herself from rooms above a barber's shop in Brixton. Jones was instrumental in initiating what became the Notting Hill Carnival. She did it in the face of opposition from associates who thought a street party a trivial response to racist violence. Since the 1958 riots, Notting Hill had also been the site of the murder of black carpenter Kelso Cochran by an unidentified white youth. But Jones insisted a carnival would encourage social cohesion and foster a sense of racial identity broader than being a colonial immigrant. The title of the essay she wrote for the souvenir booklet sold at the first carnival in 1959 says it all. A people's art is the genesis of their freedom. It is as if the vividness of our national life was itself the spark urging translation to new surroundings, to convey, to transplant our folk origins to British soil, she wrote. There is a comfort in this effort, not only for the Carnival Committee and the West Indian Gazette, for the fine artists participating in our carnival, but for all West Indians, who strain to feel and hear and reflect their idiom, even as they strain to feel the warmth of their sun-drenched islands and its immemorial beauty of landscape and terrain. Filmed by the BBC and broadcast in the Caribbean, the 1959 carnival featured steel band musicians like the Trinidad All-Stars and Calypsonians like Lord Kitchener. Oddly, it took place not in the streets of Notting Hill, but indoors in St Pancras Town Hall, and in winter. Not until after Jones's death in 1964 did the carnival move west and become the outdoor festival it is today, what her biographer calls a living testament to the memory of Jones, who was loved, honoured and respected by the entire London Caribbean community. Jones wasn't the only woman with an unwavering faith in women's ability to cut across boundaries and create a better society. Across the world, the nuclear threat was growing as tension between the US and the Soviet Union ratcheted up. Britain's incendiary response was to build its own hydrogen bomb. A mass of competing campaign groups opposed the move, but after 1957, most of them joined forces under the umbrella of the newly founded Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, CND. 
although many of its loudest voices, the likes of Bertrand Russell, J.B. Priestley and Michael Foote, were male, CND was in fact powered by strong women like Priestley's wife, the archaeologist Jaquetta Hawkes, the geneticist Charlotte Auerbach, and especially Peggy Duff and Pat Arrowsmith, who organised the marches to the Atomic Weapons Research Establishment in Aldermaston that first brought CND into the public eye. The first fully-fledged Aldermaston march took place over a wet, miserable Easter weekend in April 1958. Despite it being the coldest Good Friday for 41 years, 4,000 people gathered in Trafalgar Square at the start, while 500 stuck it out for the 50-mile, three-day duration. Among the marchers, travelling in a battered old charabank from which she handed out sausages and cups of tea, was the pacifist Dora Russell, now in her mid-60s and still naively pro-Soviet Russia, but as committed as ever to the cause that had defined her life. Part 2 After years of debilitating illness, George VI finally died in February 1952, days after travelling to London Airport to wave off his daughter, Princess Elizabeth, on a tour of Australia. She had been shouldering some of the burden of her father's duties for some time. In November 1952, Elizabeth opened Parliament for the first time. The society photographer Cecil Beaton, watching her, noted that her eyes are not those of a busy, harassed person. She regards people with a recognition of compassion and a slight suggestion of a smile lightens the otherwise cumbrous mouth. As the Queen's biographer Ben Pimlet commented, nobody ever wrote of a male monarch like this. Beneath the pomp, the coronation was, as Pimlet says, a burial service for the empire. And with her youth and innocence, the 27-year-old Elizabeth stood for the possibilities of a changing Britain. Beyond the gates of Buckingham Palace, a storm of progress was brewing. Over the next few years, there would be huge shifts in popular culture. The birth of the rebellious, consumerist teenager. A growing lack of class deference. Spikiness where there had once been docility. None of these would be reflected in the Queen's behaviour or appearance, though over time they would alter the way the country viewed her and the rest of the royal family. In this frozen moment, however... Britain enjoyed itself to the patriotic full. Shops did a roaring trade in Union Jack flags, as well as orbs, scepters, maces, coaches and crowns. There was a craze for periscopes which enabled bystanders to see over tall people in the crowd. But the big thing, the truly radical thing, was the televising of the coronation, despite the Queen's initial reluctance. The number of holders of TV licences doubled to three million and an estimated 27 million people watched the event live for at least half the day. If they didn't have sets themselves, they went round to the houses of wealthier friends or family who did. The broadcasting experiment was a huge success. But the Queen herself continued to be suspicious of television, and for her first Christmas broadcast, instructed the BBC to show only a photograph of her next to a microphone. The Queen was at the centre not just of a media revolution but of the world's idealising gaze. Cecil Beaton, for one, couldn't get enough of her. As she walks, she allows her heavy skirt to swing backwards and forwards in a beautiful, rhythmic effect. This girlish figure has enormous dignity. She belongs in this scene of almost Byzantine magnificence. Photographing her at the palace afterwards, Beaton noted that she looked tired after wearing the heavy crown for three hours. 
But she had survived the ordeal and made only one mistake, forgetting to curtsy when she got to the North Pillar. As well as stressing the virtues of stability and continuity, the coronation had all manner of cultural ripple effects, from boosting sales of televisions to introducing the nation to new culinary delights. The gloopy, mildly spiced sandwich filler favourite Coronation Chicken was created for the Coronation Banquet by Rosemary Hume, founder of the Cordon Bleu Cookery School. But did the installation of a woman at the centre of British public life do anything for gender equality? It's hard to see it. As the Queen settled onto the throne, women continued to be sidelined. This might have been the scientific century, the century of penicillin and the nuclear bomb, but by 1951 the Royal Society had admitted only seven women as fellows. The scientist Rosalind Franklin never called her 